Hello and welcome to Making of a Musician, Tracy. Thanks for having me. In the last place I looked, you were standing right in front of me. Couldn't see you for the burnt trees roaring like thunder. I thought we'd go straight back into music when you were little and I was wondering do you remember the time that music first grabbed your attention? I grew up in a really musical household. My mum listened, we had lots of records everywhere. My mum played the piano and my parents were separated when I was three but I used to visit my dad a lot as well so he had guitars laying around because he was a working musician and mum had guitars around our house as well so there was just tons of music all the time. So I think as a kid, my earliest memory is we used to have this little brown kitchen radio. It was a Zenith or I don't know what it was, a little Pioneer, I can't remember the brand. And I remember laying on the floor on my tummy, just turning the dial for hours. I would just stare at this little screen on the, you know, the brown mesh and just turn the dial slowly, just picking up any signals. And just listening to, you know, as soon as I got a song that I, I knew, I knew every word, and then I'd flip to the next one, and I just for hours, different genres, whatever it would be. So I used to spend hours just listening to music um, and plunking around on the piano, tried to get mum to teach me how to play, but she gave up within half an hour. <laughs> I think the combination of parents and, and pedagogy are not really a good combination. It doesn't work. So she gave up, so I never really learned piano. But guitar I used to pick up, and my brother was learning it a bit kind of self-taught and he would teach me a few chords and my stepdad Rob would teach me a few chords and dad would teach me a few chords and mom would teach me a few chords so you know playing as a kid never taking it seriously just strumming away on guitar but not for any real purpose I guess and in the last place I looked I was pining over something I saw on the blink of an eye when like a song or a film clip really popped at you when you were little? My best friend Sarah, her mom was a nurse and dad was um, at the pub usually. He worked on ships but he would, he would go out drinking at night. So we had no parent supervision and she just lived across the backyard. And we were best buddies and so Friday night videos, we would just stay up and watch Friday night videos all night, just listening to music, making up dance routines to Stars on 45 and Golden Hits and this, that and the other. Duran Duran, I was really influenced by the kind of new wave scene that her older sisters, who we thought were super cool, were listening to. And then I got seriously into Depeche Mode, which was a new wave band. Like, I was obsessed. And I think that was my first rock concert. My first big concert wow. was Depeche Mode. And uh, my room was covered in their stuff. I had my hair shaved like Dave gone at Depeche Mode. I had shaved all around the sides of the back in a big black. It was halfway between Robert Smith of the Cure and Dave gone. It was this crazy punk rock new wave dude and pins up and down the jeans. And so that was about maybe yeah, I was 12, 13. I was obsessed with them. And we had this old, like a keyboard that my stepdad brought into the house with all the different beats, yeah, like yeah. this really dodgy old organ. And so he and I, that was our first kind of, my first maybe musical 
collaboration or me trying to do anything. We would jam on this thing, you know, we'd be jamming Depeche Mode songs with the few little chords I knew and the beat back beats and he was a great singer and he always told me I was a terrible singer. So when I started singing for real, years and years later, he said, I got it, you were terrible. I don't know what's happened, but you can sing now. <laughs> you never used to be able to sing, but we used to just jam for hours and that was a lot of fun. Do you remember one of the first songs that you ever jammed? Uh, the I'm Taking a Ride with My Best Friend. That one and Never Let Me Down Again, I think is the name of the song, Depeche Mode, and Just Can't Get Enough, that little classic. As a young teenager, loved Depeche Mode and New Wave music. Basically whatever my friends were into, I was kind of not into. I tried to go a different direction. So it was kind of, I had maybe one girlfriend that really loved that stuff with me. Did you cool. have anything like Countdown in Canada? We had Friday Night Videos and Dick Clark had a show. I can't remember the name of the show. But right. Yeah, they would go down through the videos. Yep, yep. And Friday Night Videos would do the same thing. Because, yeah, we have rage and, yeah. Yeah, and yeah, for people like me, Countdown was like Sunday night, family time. And I think, I mean, in the 80s, videos were just huge. That's when they exploded. Yeah. And then the idea of a narrative and a story, like a storyline, and it's not just people standing there strumming instruments or you yeah. know, hitting the drums. It's, we've got kind of a real kind of drama starting to unfold, which is exciting in Michael Jackson's videos. I was going to ask you about the making of the Paradise film clip. Mm, yeah, well that was my f second official video and I was lucky enough to work with a team of people that have that are just graduated film school and they're already working in the field and they had access. They did me a real huge favor. So we just kind of did it for cost of renting. They wanted to have the chance to rent the best gear that they could and some cool 70s lenses. So it was so professionally done but for a really budget you know, because they wanted something for their, their movie reel. And so it was a win-win. And uh, I was just really, really lucky to get to work with them. And we, you know, shot over two days and they hired, they cast for it. They had the three actors. They auditioned for the roles. So I had nothing to do with the narrative. I had nothing to do with the casting. That was the idea. I had a whole different idea for the film clip actually. And they're like, well, no, let's do, <laughs> let's do this. Is it hard to give um, up that artistic control? For me it is. I'm very controlling, yeah. definitely. But I trusted them and I knew that, and I, I kind of didn't, I wanted to relinquish control of it. I thought, I'm over this. You do that job. I wrote the song, you guys come up with a film clip, otherwise it can become your self-control. do another one but not with them I don't think this time I'm not sure what we're gonna do but I've got some ideas for another song our oh, finer side yeah it's a it's a fun one and it's the only one where Dan and Luke sing a verse each so I thought it's kind of a bit of a party song and so I've got it this time it'll be one of my concepts and uh, we're gonna try and get Shane O'Mara on board It's going to be a lot of fun this one if we can pull it off. So whether we film it on an iPhone or whether we film it on an old 80s video camera or we rent some good gear for a day, it's yet to be decided. Yeah, release that early, like maybe January for next year. Just try to release another yeah. single and keep plugging the album along. Yeah, it's a good album.
that first track has got such a big sound, like space. Oh, great. You can just really feel the space in the room. That's you know, great. Yeah, like I thought that was a really great opening track. So what makes an opening track? Yeah, well, that it's funny, that song, The Valley of Thieves, this, this new album that we're talking about, I, I feel like we always, in my mind, I always thought that's got to be the opening track. I just, I heard it as the opening track. So did the rest of the band when we were rehearsing it. But then when we recorded it, the first recording of it, it had nothing to do with the way it was engineered, but it just lacked the magic. It just wasn't happening. And I'm, oh God, where are we gonna start with? That's, that's the opener, it's gotta be the opener. So we didn't get it. So we insisted, uh, Shane, Shane wanted us to do things differently than we normally do, and we trust him because he's brilliant at what he does. But there was, he wanted us to kind of layer things independently. So, for example, I would play the guitar part and then Dan would go and layer his acoustic guitar over top of that for this particular song. And we kept saying, we're going to lose the magic. We need to play at the same time. We need to be able to see each other. We need to be able to lock in rhythmically. Yeah. That's really important. And we wanted to do the whole record live, but it just wasn't possible with the setup at Shane's to do the whole thing live. We did as much as we could live. So we convinced him and said, we've got to get rid of that. It sounds, there's no magic in this take. Let's do it again. And we've just got to tear everything down and do it from scratch and do it together. So he set us up in the living room. I was in one room and Dan was in another. I could see him through the door. And Bree was in the bigger lounge room on the drums. So the three of us did our parts completely live, could see each other, could hear each other through headphones. And we got it. And the, my vocals live on that. I had to get the vocal and then Dan layered in his harmonies later. But the vocal and the whole bed track is live. So then the bass came in after and Luke put his swelly, beautiful guitar work over top. So then we got the magic and then it became the opening track. It just felt like uh, it takes you, feels like it kind of just takes you slowly by the hand and pulls you in yeah. to the record rather than yeah. smashing you across the face with something like Paradise or Fireside. I'm wondering why you didn't choose Thieves as the, as the opening. Yeah, I feel like uh, yeah, the valley to me just feels like we're ready to start a journey, yep, to go yep. on to some kind of an adventure. And Thieves, I feel like I wanted listeners to have, to have been through a few more tracks, to have thought about a few different things, to have gone on a bit of a journey before they reached that, because it's a bit of a darker song, it's quite an emotional song, and it kind of needs a place of its own. I don't think it sits up at the top. I don't think, I wouldn't be ready to hear it at the top. You know, yeah, it sounds yeah. so pretentious, but I put a lot of thought, and so does Bree, the drummer, and the rest of the band, into what order the songs go in. It's definitely, we're thinking old school, like when vinyl, because we've done vinyl, and what is side A, and then you flip the record, and then what are you in the mood to hear, what side B, how are we going to close it, how does the last song feed into track one again, when you, if you want to play it again. So, there's a lot of thought that goes on. Yeah, it's an amazing process. Listening to the 2011 Fire from Burning, how do you see the difference between the two albums? Because, mm. yeah, there's definitely, from my listening, you hear in Thieves, there's a bit more of a style that runs through, whereas yeah. there's definitely stuff, it touches on stuff from 2011, but you can really see that you've, you've really gone into a style rather than sort of trying to find your way. Is that yeah, sort of like totally. you see the difference? 
Yeah, for sure. I think Fire From Burning was the first album I made when I got to Australia. So my first solo album it was really, not my first solo album, but it was my second solo album. But I kind of, I mean, I count my first album, Room Where She Lives, but it was really a country record. Okay, that, and yeah. I made that back in Canada and I was very green and I was, you know, a good friend of mine produced it, Michael Laird. And it was, I'm going to sit down and try to write a country album because that's what I was listening to at the time and really influenced by bluegrass, traditional country. Whereas when I got to Australia, I kind of was ready to just expand a bit more and I formed a band and had Maddie Green on guitar who can do all these, he's just a phenomenal guitarist and so things started taking a bit of a rockier kind of trajectory and I really like that and I think the title track Fire From Burning is the cornerstone of that. It's kind of, the, or the germ or the seed of the idea of like, ah okay, let's write some more rock songs in a way. You say you're sinking like a stone with a head full of dreams but heavy as lead but I take a look it just kind of shifted away from I mean it's, it's not fully away from country it's alternative country Americana old country pop rock whatever yeah but I don't think there was anything poppy about fire from burning whereas I feel like now the, the last couple albums I've made, it's that pop sensibility melodically um, with the harmonies and the melodies and the structure, I think, is kind of seeping in there a little bit more. Yeah, because 70s West Coast California. Mm. How many times have we heard that? I know, I was trying to, when I first read that, I was like, what, what, does, what does 70s West Coast California mean? Yeah. And then when I was listening to these, I'm like, I think I get it. But how would you describe it? Well, I mean, Jackson Brown, Fleetwood Mac, you know, those are the, there's contemporary bands that I love, a band called Dawes, who were Jackson Brown's backing band recently, the last few years, and they've released, say, four or five studio albums. So there's contemporary bands that are kind of, there's a band called Houndmouth that I love, that are capturing that sound, influenced by that kind of, that real groove. Um, we just, we, we love it, that, you know, Crosby, Stills, Nash, that, that whole, the har harmonies, even to the Allman Brothers, which aren't that West Coast sound, but were influenced this record definitely by the Allman Brothers and the guitarmonies, that 70s, two guitars working off each other. And with Luke and Dan in the band, we were able to kind of do that. And we all just listened to that same kind of music. We're all really into that, that same 70s stuff. So it was kind of easy, it just fell into place. We didn't say, let's make a record that sounds 70s or let's make a song that sounds like Fleetwood Mac. Just when I would bring the songs to the band and we'd start jamming them, we'd go, oh, we don't know what it sounds like, but we, that's the reference that we kept getting. So. It's interesting, yeah, isn't it? It wasn't intentional. Yeah, as a songwriter, you never sit down and write a song particularly to sound a certain way. Well, for me, it's just whatever comes out, and then the melody sort of comes out from there. Yeah. And yeah. so I was it's wondering true. whether that's. Definitely. I think the only time I've ever sat down and went, okay, I'm going to try and write something specific, was the gap between Fire From Burning and Nobody Ever Leaves, my third album, Nobody Ever Leaves, which was much rockier and poppier. I wasn't getting, we weren't getting a lot of Friday and Saturday nights, like gigs. Yeah. I thought, I want to be a Friday night band. I want to be a Saturday night band. And we just didn't have enough like rock out material. So that came from a really kind of utilitarian place of I need to, I want to work more. I want to be able to be a band that can hold their own on a Friday or Saturday night and not for this Thursday night or a friggin' tea on Sunday afternoon thing. I want to be able to rock out. 
And so I started writing some rock songs just particularly for that. So we'd have a change in our set and the energy and, and thus Nobody Ever Leaves was kind of born in a way from that. Songs like uh, Learning to Run and Wildcats. And, I love Wildcats. You know, it's got such a great feel. Thank you. I mean that and that kind of started taking us on that west coast path we were getting that reference a lot with wildcats and paradise is an extension of that and you know I wrote paradise for thieves sitting in Toronto outside a bakery with no guitar and a pen and a piece of paper while I was visiting my brother last summer and just had this melody and thinking of it as a wildcats-esque type song that's how it felt to me and that's what I presented to the band saying it's kind of like think wildcats that's where we're going with this then it kind of went on this whole other tangent you know that I, I love war on drugs that was a reference we used for, for drums for Brie for that song um, we love war on drugs and their latest the, the new album well it's not new anymore but lost in the dream I think that's I think you asked me earlier if there's an album that everyone should own. And yeah. I feel that that's the album that everyone should own is Lost in the Dream by War and Drugs. It's a huge album. It seems almost predictable for me to say that, but it really is. It captures so much, so many threads of nostalgia. Like, like there's moments where you think, you know, Bruce Springsteen, there's, then there's kind of like these New Wave or what's the band? Um, oh, Before New Order. Oh, uh, Joy Division. Joy Division. There's just, there's, there's almost country, not country, but there's just such singer-songwriter, beautiful moments, pop moments, 80s moments, 90s moments, and still fresh, like it's just today. the making of Thieves like when did you start writing it uh, I wrote it in I had a couple spoke two songs kind of uh, I had Wait On You that I wrote and Thieves the title track I'd written those on the piano had them kind of nutted out on the piano before I went to Canada last year so I went in June I believe and spent three months over there um, visiting family playing solo shows um, dealing with dad I'd lost my dad and I lost my cousin about three weeks after I arrived there so it was pretty crazy so then I started you know I had so much to work with emotionally and so I started writing songs because I had all this time on my hands as well and would go down into the studio at my mom's work on some songs and so I wrote it during that three-month period and then I went to Nashville for we were there for 10 days for the Americana Music Festival we were showcasing as part of Sounds Australia so I met my band over in Nashville worked on a few songs over there flew to LA for a few days just Luke and I and that's I wrote Blueprint, or the, you know, got the got the idea and the melody and the the main hook and chorus for Blueprint in LA. So it's kind of been written in Melbourne, LA, Nashville, Canada. So across three countries really. And over that kind of four, maybe a five month span. And then the moment I got back, we start. I got back in late September, early October. We started recording in. We started rehearsing then November and started recording, I think, either early January or we might have done a date in December. So it was really quick, bang, bang, bang. And then about, you know, over a couple months it was done, but it was really 10 days if you add them all up. Wow. So it's the fastest record I've ever made. And I just, we just rehearsed, we had as many rehearsals as we could. And I rented a holiday house in Dalesford for, to try to entice the band, like, let's just spend a weekend together so we can just work around the clock and learn these songs and figure out them 
the structure and everything. And so we did that and it was beautiful. We had a really nice weekend of getting everything and then the next weekend we were in the well, studio. You said it was a personal record. Is that the lyrics or the music or...? Uh, I think all, I think they're so intertwined. I very rarely have lyrics in my head. I don't know if I ever. I think I, I don't ever have lyrics in my head before a melody or they kind of come together. So I guess the music, not the instrument choices, not the instrumentation really, but the feel of the song and then the, the content and the lyrics. Yeah. yeah. And so your lyrics come sort of secondary to your music? Yeah, I think it's, maybe they do a bit. It's kind of, it kind of comes, sometimes I'm lucky when they come at the same time. If I'll just start strumming on a particular chord progression, trying to find a feel or a groove, often lyrics and melody will come and they might be the lyrics that stay or it might just be placeholders for something. Then I'll go back and try and craft the lyrics. Um, sometimes the lyrics are really awful, but they just allow me to find a melodic line that's gonna work with the groove that I've got and then, then I might go back and change them. But if I have to do too much engineering, I, I hate it. I'm kind of lazy as a writer and I, I, I prefer that it comes all in one go. And it kind of, you know, you spit it out and there it is, it's it's done. And the, the best ones often for me are the strongest songs are done like that. If I have to go back and nitpick and craft, I get not bored but frustrated really quickly and then get lazy and went, ah, you know, it's good enough. Whereas Luke, my partner and my husband, he'll work forever on lyrics and he's a brilliant lyricist. So I should probably take a, a page out of his book, but everybody's different. Yeah, everyone writes differently. sort of role did music play with your family? Dad was a musician, which meant he didn't have a lot of money, but he was relatively happy. <laughs> and we didn't see him a lot because he had a new partner, but he was on the road a lot and he was working, playing music. And so we saw him Christmas, birthdays, and peppered in between those big events, we would see Dad or he'd babysit us. But we lived in the same town and my mother and him were always still really amicable and good friends in a way. So there wasn't any real animosity or tension. We just didn't see him a lot. I'd watch him go play down in the park at the bandstand. His band would come and play at some event in town and, or in a pub somewhere. And seeing my dad on stage, you've been asked the question, like, how did that feel? Because he was your dad. But it, because we weren't living together, it really was, I probably was not much different than other people watching Batman on stage. It's like, yeah, he is my dad, but I'm having the same experience watching this band because I think if we'd lived together and grown up together, it would be a whole different thing. Yeah. But I was almost in awe of him and held him in a real high regard as this musician that's living his life, making himself happy and gets to do this cool thing and be on stage. And as a kid, you know, as a side note to all this, I was dancing to a ballet, jazz, contemporary four or five nights a week and doing competitions and doing my own choreography and like I was heavily into dance so I knew what it was like to be a performer and did tons of that but never to use my voice never as a musician so I thought he was incredible for that and then my stepdad would play around the house play piano Elton John I remember him playing Elton, endless Elton John on the piano and Neil Young on the guitar amazing and an incredible singer and just for fun never took it seriously just, just and, Yeah, and my brother played, started to get into rock bands. My brother started these listening to Smashing Pumpkins, kind of indie bands. And so I thought that was really cool. He'd play all the parties. But I didn't really start until 
I went to university for my dance degree at York University in Toronto for four years I was there. And I had a guitar with me and I was playing the stairwell and I'd started, that's when I started to write songs. And as a 14 year old I wrote joke songs that were not very nice about my friends, just silly goofy songs. Uh, but that was kind of the first forte into writing. And then when I was, you know, 18, 19 at university, I thought, I'm going to try to write, see if I can write something serious that says something, that means something. So I would do that for my small group of friends and they would think it's great, but I never had the guts to go out and do an open mic or anything till I was... So that was in my early 20s and I was 27, I think, before I did my first open mic. Oh, wow. So really, I've come to music quite late in terms of taking it seriously and going, oh, I want to make a go of this. And I think I... I used to go to bluegrass nights um, in my late 20s. I lived in Montreal in Canada. I kind of moved around the country. I'd graduated from uni and I was living as an artist. I'd done 10 years of kind of trying to make it as a dancer, as a choreographer, as a student director, rehearsal director. I taught dance for like nearly 20 years by that point because I've been teaching since I was a kid. And I just kind of thought, this dance thing's really hard. I'm getting older. My body's not holding up. It's really hard to train, get up for 9 a.m. classes and I was going to bluegrass nights watching all these country musicians in Montreal and just thought stuff this dancing you know <laughs> I love it but music's pretty cool and I can remember a friend of mine he was staying with me for a while and um, we were good friends he was a great songwriter a guy called Jesse Reed Canadian songwriter and he'd go to the bluegrass nights and I would watch him get up and play and he'd always say why don't you just get up and do something but I wasn't good enough to really join in but I wanted to so badly and I remember they'd bring jugs of beer around and they'd say, oh no, this is just for the musicians. And I felt like there was this clique, this club that I was, was not quite a part of. And uh, so badly, didn't, didn't want to be necessarily in the club, but wanted to be on stage doing that. But just could not get over the hurdle of the nerves of singing my own stuff. It was terrifying. But I think as I got older and as you, get, as you do it more, it is nerve-wracking when that first release comes out or you post that first single or whatever from a new album. You're nervous about what people are going to think in a way, but you kind of, I found that the more I do it, the more confident I get with it. And the, I'd be lying if I said I don't care what people think, because I do. I want people to connect with it and love it and have some kind of connection, have it resonate with them in some way. But I feel like I'm at the point now where I'm going to do it regardless. So, and once you do it and once it's out there, it's not yours anymore anyway. And you kind of can be removed from it. It just becomes this song, then other people can make what they will of it. Yeah. Can you enjoy listening to your own music? There's kind of a small window. I think sometimes I've had that when, it, when you first record it and you first hear it back, like in those early days in the studio, like day one. I think day one's the, the best, or the day one of each new song you're going to do. And if it's really sounding great, that moment is like, holy, we're on to something. This is amazing. But day two, three, four, five, the, the magic diminishes and you kind of, then you just start picking it apart. And then you're in this weird zone where nothing's good enough. Is it ever going to be ready? And then by the time you release it, you're like, oh, the bloody thing out there. I'm sick of hearing it. Maybe that first listen in a car, when the stereo, if it's if the mix is right and the master's done and you listen in the car, I remember driving home from Sing Sing with Thieves in the car, putting the master in and the sun's kind of, you know, shining and I'm feeling just trying to soak it in and say, Tracy, just just try to be proud of this and listen to it. And, and because it was such a personal record, I kind of allowed myself to do that. And I was really 
pleased with it and proud of it. And you know, Shane's done an incredible job uh, engineering it and mixing it. Um, Ross Cockle mastered it at Sing Sing, and my band is incredible. So I'm lucky to have that, and we've made this thing. So it's not just me; it's a band record, and, and I'm really proud of how hard we were and how tedious we were yeah. trying to make sure everything stuck. Finds a way to land where you lie. Time allows me to steal you. Christmas 1980 for me had my mother playing Master Blaster by Stevie Wonder over and over. This probably explains my own need to play songs I like over and over. Did your parents have any strange musical behaviours oh, like this? They, you know what, the only one I will say is uh, my Christmas album that mum used to, mum had, she loved Steely Dan, she loved Yes, she loved, um, you know, the Eagles were huge. Mom and Dad both loved the Eagles. But Christmas, you know, Dave Brubeck, she loved jazz. So there was a real, we had a real mix. But Christmas time, she would play Mannheim Steamroller, this German, this German orchestra that would do Christmas songs. But they were just like these weird renditions. And every year it was the Mannheim Steamroller at Christmas time. And eventually I kind of, I think, you know, I'm ashamed to say I enjoyed it and I used to use it when I was teaching ballet lessons. I would use it around Christmas time for my, for my classes with the kids. But yeah, at first it was just the most horrific, like the cheesiest stuff you can just imagine, these renditions of Christmas songs. And it was a tradition every freaking Christmas. Man, bust out the Mannheim Steamroller. My mum was in my dad's first band, Fargo, was the band that he was in for many years and probably the most popular band that he was in. She was in the first incarnation of that band before she had kids. But yeah, she would. She sings all the time, like she sings, she's a songwriter now. In her 50s she picked up music and started like back to music after the kids are all gone, we're gone. And my stepdad kind of built a studio at home and my mom's made like three records. Wow. and been nominated for country music awards in the province which is the same as our state so same as Victoria Music Awards kind of thing so she's actually you know a songwriter now and and she's slowing down now but played festivals and plays gigs her my stepdad's in the band so she's constantly singing as well and I remember bringing her she's one of those people I bring to house concerts she brought to a house concert and she just can't help but sing along with whoever's singing you know it's like we're here to see the band but I'm guilty of the same thing but so I guess just singing along randomly yeah yeah think that I don't know your Just how this story ends I won't miss you when you're gone And I won't cry when What was alone. your first instrument? Guitar. You, so it was guitar? Yeah. And how I mean, I say guitar, but really I was plunking around on piano, but I can't play the piano. I mean, I can play basic chords, but guitar is when I started thinking, let's try and write songs or muck around. Yeah. So I was about 13. 
maybe? Yeah. When I seriously started learning chords when I was about 13, yeah. And do you remember the first song you learned on guitar? Yep, Heart of Gold, Neil Young. Oh wow, yeah. that's a great song. Yeah, Heart of Gold. And can you still play it? Uh, yeah. Is there an instrument you wish you played? Drums. Drums? Love to be a drummer. Yeah. Love to be a drummer. I'm one of those closet drummers. At any party, I bust out the, we've got a drum kit in the music room here and usually, you know, or anywhere, I'll just try and get Bree, my drummer, to show me stuff. And, bust out the uh, brushes, the sticks. It's hard, it's like maths for me. It's, I'm not very good at it, but I, I love it. It's, it's really cool. In another life, I'd be a drummer. What was the first album you couldn't get enough of? As a kid, I'd listen to Neil Young Harvest over and over and over and over and over again. And, you know, without knowing it, I'm sure that's that's in there. It's in your blood. You know, yeah, when you yeah. listen to something as a nine-year-old, you know, flipping the album. But, uh, and Fleetwood Mac, Steel Dan, Eagles, all that stuff. But as a teenager, really switched on with a guitar in my hand and trying to write songs. Listening to Blind Melon, for sure. When I, I guess when I was like 18, so just about to go off to university, I kind of went through this phase of listening to stuff that I kind of listen to now, almost like the stuff. Blind Melon was the band in the, in the 90s that introduced me to that, to so the Allman Brothers, uh, Grateful Dead. So I kind of went through this hippie phase of listening to kind of 70s guitar rock and psychedelic music and loved Blind Melon. That song No Rain, which is the kind of pop hit they had, but then I bought the record and just fell in love with the whole record. And that was harmonies, it was guitar harmonies, it was just just a brilliant record and I was obsessed with them, became obsessed with them. And that kind of got me really starting to think about writing songs, I think, on the guitar and singing, developing a sense of what a vocal harmony was. So yeah, I think Blind Melon are responsible for that. And I went and saw them in concert and camp out overnight to get tickets. And then Shannon Hoon, the singer, died of course he OD so then they did that classic thing where the band goes back on tour playing small little clubs because the lead guy's gone and they've got some replacement singer but I got to meet them that way except for Shannon and I've still got Christopher Thorne one of the guitarists I've got his guitar pick from when I was 21 or something at this concert yeah so that's kind of funny I guess that got me into to writing songs listening to that stuff that's fantastic when did you write your first song? I guess my first non-series song, I was about 14, was, was a joke song. I actually didn't write it. It was a rendition. I've, it was a remix of Walking in a Winter Wonderland <laughs> Christmas song and just redid the lyrics. But played it on the guitar. That was my first, like, let's write lyrics to a, an existing song. And it was basically teasing a friend of mine. It was about her. And she was there. But, but She's still friends? Yeah, we're still friends. <laughs> But I guess that was my first, and then I went to a, I worked at a Jewish camp in the kitchen, which is an odd thing, but my brother got a job there, and the next summer I got a job there, and it was up in uh, Halliburton, which is northern Ontario, middle of nowhere, up in the bush. So I played guitar in all my spare time, and started trying to write songs, and I had this really horrific song, well, you know, I think it's horrific, I thought it was pretty good at the time. Flashlights and Fireflies, it was called, and that was probably my first actual song, you know, about a boy I liked at the camp. It was melodic and the melody was bad. Lyrics, you know, cringeworthy now when I think about it, but as a 20-year-old with a guitar. And how does that compare to your last song? Well, I'd like to think we grow as songwriters. I like to think I can sing better. I never consider myself a singer. I've always just thought I'm a songwriter. I feel more confident in my ability to 
write a craft a song than sing a song and that's kind of changing I am getting getting a bit more confident vocally but I think we just we live and we grow we just grow on them I'm, I'm 42 so I've lived through a lot and can draw from those experiences far more than a 21 year old what's the most current song you've written well I mean I've just put thieves out June yeah, June 1st, 2016. Where are we now? June, July, August, it's September, three months later. I've had a couple songs kicking around, like little starts of songs, and I've just finished a song. I think it's finished. I've got to tweak some lyrics still. Go back and engineer, get the gloves out and fix the lyrics, but I've just, I've got a couple that I've done since then. So I've written a couple songs the last three months. Whether they're going to be great and they're going to make it onto another album, I don't know, but it's exciting to have new stuff. Yeah. And even though I try not to pressure myself because I did just release this, but it's amazing how quickly something can feel old. Do you find when you're in the recording studio you get inspired to write something new? Or? Sometimes. I usually come with them all finished. I try to have everything done and they're really... Because time is money in the studio, I want to make sure the band, we're, we're not screwing around wasting any time. If we were on a label, we could just lounge around in the studio for, I'm sure there'd be a lot more experimentation. Things would have been pulled out and drawn out and we tried different approaches and that would be a luxury. But there was something kind of nice about, we did a few rehearsals and then just went bang in and did it in the fastest I've ever done a record was that was like, you know, the equivalent to say 10 to 10 days in the studio or something, which is way faster than any of my other ones. And how long did you spend mixing? Mixing, oh, Shane mixed it probably four days or something, mixing, wow. I don't know. It wasn't, wasn't too, too long. That's amazing. But he mixes as he goes, so oh, he okay. can't handle listening back when it sounds like rubbish. So he'll, he'll kind of be mixing and tweaking as he's going. So you, you're always listening to quite a, quite an accomplished mix back with him, which is awesome. Yeah. Um, because it can be quite scary when you just hear it back raw and nobody's done anything to it. And you start burning CDs for the band to listen to in the car and they're like, oh my God, <laughs> what are we doing? This is awful. We take about a week where we just wouldn't even listen to it, even though we're so excited to hear it. We just take a few days to a week to not listen and then go back with fresh ears again because you, you learn so much each time you do that. And, yeah. And you can see, I mean, you have to kind of clean the slate a bit. What led to the realisation that you wanted to be a musician? Well, I kind of gave up on dance, which I focused, it's funny, they're like two very similar, they're completely different worlds, but I poured equal amounts of energy and time and love and passion into them. So dance I did as an, I started when I was eight and I did it until I was 27. And I did it religiously, like five days, six days, up to seven days a week. I was dancing eight day, eight hours a day at university in the touring dance company they had. When I graduated, then I was teaching dance for a living um, and then trying to, as the songwriter, as the dance maker, I was the choreographer. So I always had that role um, where I wanted to make my own work. So that meant applying for grants and funding and trying to get residencies so you can have a studio to work in for free, which I was lucky enough to get. And then it became, how do I pay my dancers? Which is now, how do I pay my band? So it's the same kind of deal, but far more unforgiving. Contemporary dance world is so marginalized. It's so tiny, it's so niche. It's uh, quite pretentious. I love it to death, but I just kind of found this fire for music. 
and the lifestyle. I liked going out to the pub and I was smoking cigarettes and drinking and I mean it sounds crazy but it was just so much more re relaxed and I'd been having this regimented really kind of I mean look after myself and work so hard. I just slowly started going to more gigs and not going to class as much in the morning and thought this this lifestyle is pretty cool and let's see if I can I know how to perform but I now let's try and use my voice and it was terrifying I used to like near vomit before terrified the few open mics that I, I did. I sat down and wrote my first album. It took me about a year to write it while I was going to those bluegrass nights, just kind of, and then I'd go home and I'd work on songs. And I did one open mic the day before I moved away from Montreal. And I moved to Toronto to form a band and start recording my first album with my brother in tar. He was in the band playing mandolin and a bass player. It was just a little trio. And then we hired all these beautiful guns, a drummer and a pedal steel, a lap steel. People to come and play with us on the record. And that was a nine month period. And then literally launched in Toronto and then three days later moved to Australia. Wow. So I had really done maybe nine gigs, if that, before I moved to Australia. I had this new record that I'd just made, my first record, very country album, put in my suitcase, moved to Australia and did a year of, I was supposed to come for 10 months, post-grad dip in education. And then here we are 10 years later. I was really beginning, I really, I knew how, I had some good songs, I could kind of sing, could play the guitar, didn't know how to rap a lead, didn't know how to set up a PA, didn't know how to do anything. I learned that in Australia. So. And what made you choose Australia to come to? So I guess the spark was, I need to go to teacher's college so I can work nine to five, enough of this teaching dance at night and then I can play gigs at night. So why, why Australia? Oh, my good friend that I lived with, she came and did it. She, her mum was from Cairns, and my, one, one of my best friends, I lived with her for many years, and we did these art shows together. She's a visual artist. She went and did it, because she had family to stay with out here and everything, and she said, just go to Australia, because Teachers College for Dance and Drama is very rare in Canada. There's only a couple schools that you can actually get that degree. And one of them is York University, where I went to. And it is so competitive. You need like an A-plus average. It's waiting lists. It's crazy. I thought, well, I don't have that. I'm not going to get in. So let's just get a bank loan, so we had to do. Move to Australia, where they'll take your money, and come here for 10 months. I thought, if I'm going to do more friggin' university, I'm going to do it somewhere beautiful, somewhere new, and at least make an adventure of it. And that's what I did, and came for 10 months, and then never came back. So what made you stay? Two things. One, I put my own band together. I started meeting musicians and started... Um, playing gigs right away, which was exciting and I was learning so much. And an instrumental person in that journey was Jordan Lane, a songwriter. And we we became good friends and we started writing songs together and put a little duo called Fireside Bellows and we made an album together called No Time to Die and it's just the one album we've ever made. Never revisited it or never, it was a really nice kind of two years of our lives. showed me how to set up a PA and rap a lead and guitar lead and I learned a lot through Jordy, introduced me to a lot of amazing people, got me into the community radio and everyone was really inviting, it was who's this Canadian coming over here and everyone was so lovely. So I was really lucky and uh, so why was I going to leave, I was, there's no way, I loved it here, I love the music here, it's different than Toronto. It's grittier, it was, I just, I, I loved it, I loved the Australian accents within the music as well, I found it really intriguing and 
There was no point going back. I didn't. I didn't want to go back. <laughs> you know, family. I love my family and I miss them, and that's a that's a sacrifice that I've made. Um, but even today, I don't want to go back. And I'm, I'm now I'm married, of course. I fell in love and got married, and here we are. That's yeah, amazing. And is there any Australian artists um, that you really love? Um, I mean, yeah, there's, of course, Liz Stringer. I just went and saw her album launch for All the Bridges last night at the Caribbean Club. She's been really influential on me. Through my time, I was listening to her. There were a few artists, I was listening to Geordie, Liz Stringer, um, The Idle Hoes, who are no longer, but that's my husband's band, which is so bizarre because I didn't meet him for another, say, four years or something. But the Idle Hoes, Downhill's Home, I loved them. And these are all still Australian bands that are that are doing really, really now Hooks bands, Race White Eagles. I'm influenced by the people around me. There's so much good music in Melbourne. It's crazy. that the first album I ever owned was Man at Work. Oh, wow. And Crowded House. Loved Crowded House as a kid, as, as a, in that age when I was listening to Depeche Mode, I was also listening to these two Australian bands, which is really bizarre that I'd end up yeah. <laughs> living over here. And none of my friends knew who they were or even cared. So I must have saw that. I think it was on those video shows. Men at Work and, and Crowded House I absolutely loved. We've mentioned Bluegrass before. Well, Bluegrass? um, I... I listen to, well, Flat and Scruggs and all the old, like, um, Everly Brothers aren't really bluegrass, but that beautiful sibling harmony. And Tony Rice, who's kind of a little bit more contemporary. I mean, Doc Watson, they're all there. They're all, we used to listen to, there's some great radio stations, online radio stations, because you couldn't listen to bluegrass. I was living in Montreal, French-speaking city in Quebec. Like, the weirdest place to get into country music. It's like a zero country scene, maybe 10 people in the country scene there. But they had this bluegrass night, and they would just get up and do all old standards and just really switched me on to it. I loved the harmonies, vocal harmony. I wasn't strong at it, I couldn't do them yet, but I was starting to wrap my head around them. Kind of simple chord progressions that I could also wrap my you know, limited skill on the guitar, um, but they were fast. I could never play that fast, could never be did. Bluegrass is so technical. My, my brother, who I haven't mentioned, I don't know why, except for his, his you know, starting playing guitar, He's an incredible mandolin player, incredible, and plays in bluegrass bands in Toronto. Builds mandolins, started building instruments. He's kind of a part-time luthier as well. He's built two fiddles, well, his first fiddle he just finished, and two mandolins. So he's insanely talented and builds mandolins, makes puppets, plays in bluegrass bands, and he's a classical animator by trade. And he's one of these psycho, talented people that lives on the other side of the world, and I miss him so much, but he switched me on to bluegrass as well. But he's got the chops, so he could do it. He's got the speed, and the, he's a big guy with big hands. So how he plays so fast on the mandolin, I don't know. But because that's what really I like does. about the mandolin instead of the guitar is the, the little um, your little fretboard, so my little yeah. fingers can get to it. And I've only been a mandolin player for about a year. It's like changed my life, changed my songwriting. Yeah, it's interesting when you can just pick up a different instrument or a different guitar, put the capo in a different. Sometimes I'll just muck around with where the capo is to give me a sense of j just just that tonality just changing the instrument 
changes your whole inspiration, doesn't it? Yeah. Really, when I'm stuck, I try to either put it down, get a different guitar or a nylon string guitar or change where the capo is and, and something then might flow when you can just be stuck for so long. What do you reckon it is about music? I, th- I don't know. I think on the one hand, it's uh, and this kind of takes me back to losing my dad last year. I feel like if I didn't have it as an outlet, a creative outlet to channel some of my emotional baggage, shall we say, as things happen in your life, you can kind of feed those experiences through the creative process and into the song. And I think if I didn't have that, it used to be dance, creating dances. Um, choreography used to do that for me and now it's music and I don't think I could exist without some kind of creative vice to funnel uh, channel what I go through emotionally in life relationships and loss and 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 the beautiful things as well so I think on the one hand it's really crucial to my mental stability well-being I think and I love performing I feed off that that idea as a kid as it was dance and now it's music it's funny it's like I, I love being on stage I don't I don't necessarily like being in the spotlight all the time I, and I shy away from it in social situations but there's something about it. being on stage when it's working when it's going well when I feel like I've got a genuine connection between myself and the audience there's nothing like that and I feed off that in perhaps in a self-indulgent way you know we all need to feel loved so I watched a um, Janis Joplin documentary just recently and she was writing a letter it was you know a letter written to her mother and she said I guess you know you reach a certain level where you look around you and a certain level of talent and you look around and there's a lot of you that are talented just as talented so what's the difference is what what makes or breaks you is it ambition or is it just who needs to be loved more and I think you know that there's something in that that validation you get when when it's working getting that kind of reaffirmation that you're doing something you're doing a good job and someone wants to listen and someone wants to listen. Well, you can get, I can get that personally just showing, when you show a buddy uh, a new song that you're really proud of, that you think, I'm onto something here. And that moment where you show it might be a family member or a friend, it just doesn't need to be thousands of people. It could just be that one person and they connect with it and they like it. And it feels, it's pretty magical. It feels great. What has influenced your playing style? I haven't tried to model my guitar playing. Again, I feel like such a hat guitarist. I'm a rhythm guitarist. I think I can hold a steady rhythm and I think one of the, the style that I've developed is I kind of percussively almost hit the guitar a bit with my hand. But I think that's just a crutch. I think it's something I do because my body needs to feel the rhythm and I think I'll lose time if I don't physicalize it in that way. And maybe that's a dance thing. It's a whole embodiment thing. But it's kind of a bad habit because sometimes I don't want that punchy percussive sound when I'm strumming and I have to work really hard to not do that. I just love so many different bands. I never sit down and go, I want to write a hound mouth song or I want to write a song that sounds like this. I can be inspired by it, but... Yeah. yeah. And has, has your influences changed over time? I think they have, and I mean, you know, Luke and I talk about this. We both loved bands like Pavement in the early 2000s, you know, indie, Sonic Youth, that kind of stuff. So we've got a pop sensibility, indie pop sensibility that the other guys in the band don't necessarily maybe have or are into necessarily. So I'll write songs that don't fit what a good life record would be like, you know, that are a little different. And they often end up in Bell Street Delays, which is my duo with Luke, because we've, we've, we love different types of music. So I'm not always gonna write a country or Americana kind of song. And I'd love the idea of getting an electric guitar and getting some keyboards and doing some pop kind of stuff. So who knows where 
where that'll take us. What sort of musical styles make you take notice? I mean, I kind of am stuck in this Americana genre at the moment that I'm really enjoying. There's a lot of great music. I keep mentioning Houndmouth, but they almost sound, they've been referred to as uh, the band. And they've got great harmonies and this real kind of, it's not country, but it's very singer-songwriter, but they have this ability to go from zero to 10 in like, one second and that's been influential on us like so they've you know they'll have this beautiful stop and then it's just bang in with like full vocal harmonies and keys going crazy and guitars going crazy and so the dynamics the flux and dynamics and and vocal harmonies pop sensibility really nice melodies and this kind of relaxed who cares kind of attitude and that comes with youth I think too so I'm quite charmed by that they're, they're a lot younger than we are in the band and um, they're great and Shovels and Rope another band that this kind of I think this this Americana scene they're really onto something there's just great stuff coming out of there and I, I think it almost defies genre because you can hear all these different musical influences that west coast that we were talking about or you know an 80s pop sense and then kind of all you know country rock rhino Adams, you know, and yet it's not played on mainstream radio, but yet it's catchy as anything. We'd be lost without community radio as well, because there's just no place, which is unfortunate. We're for the people that are making music like I make in mainstream radio. There should be. We were talking about that coming home from Liz's gig, thinking, you know, she was making this music even 15 years ago, 10, 10 15 years ago. Triple J'd be playing it, and she'd be huge. It's, it just seems to be catered to youth and what they want and they're just fed. Why couldn't they be told to like the, the kind of stuff that my friends are making, you know? As a teenager, I think Depeche Mode was my first gig. First gig I played was at Graffiti's in Toronto. I was 29 or something. How so did yeah, that Graffiti's. Work? Yeah, it was good. My mom told me to stop. I had I wore glasses, and she was telling me after, quit pushing your glasses up on your face and quit tugging at your jeans. She had some notes for me, but it was good. Yeah, it was. It, I was terrified. I remember I worked at a photography, stock photography place and I was just all day butterflies and wanted to vomit just stressing over this blank gig I just could not believe that I had to do it that night but that was it. What was the best gig that you've ever been to? What's the most memorable gig you've ever been to? I'd have to say um, I mean it changed now as a 42 year old woman it's Dawes live when they came to Australia because I've been obsessed with their records um, for the last couple of years and I actually got the support I got to support them. And I'm a firm believer now in manifestation. I feel like I manifested that to happen, but that's another story. But uh, just, just been driving around in the car, listening to. That's where I listen to music is in the car. I don't have time at home, and just cranking their the last three albums they've made, and I just love them. And I thought, I think Taylor Goldsmith is such a great songwriter. So to see them live, because they are such an incredible band, and to see how that translates in a live um, setting, not on a recorded album, was incredible. They're just as good as they are, better than That was really inspiring, and then the other layer of that was getting to actually meet them and support them for two shows, one in Melbourne, one in Sydney. It was crazy. All right, so these are my 10 quick questions. you just got to tell me which one you would prefer. Okay. All right. Guitar or drums? Drums. Beatles or Elvis? Elvis. Abba or Ramones? Ramones. Nirvana or Pearl Jam? Nirvana. The Go-Betweens or Paul Kelly? Paul Kelly. 
Country or drum and bass? Country. Classical or hip hop? Classical. Gigs or studio? Gigs. House or trance? House. Uh, the Sex Pistols or Joy Division? Joy Division. And the other one is, Bonnie Prince Billy told me once he would uh, do a duet with me and I'm wondering what song should Bonnie Prince Billy sing with me? I don't know why I'm thinking this. This is ridiculous. Somewhere over the rainbow is what came into my mind. <laughs> All right. Well, but I just pictured, he, you know, the voices, the voices doing that. I'm not sure where it will ever happen, but, you That's know. That's very cool. <laughs> and Tracy, thank you for spending episode two of Making a Musician with me. I hope you found it as enjoyable and fun as I did. It was my pleasure. It was great, Christy. Thanks for having me.